take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to Field Preachers Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I have the honor and privilege to have a conversation with a dear friend and mentor of mine, Elaine Heath. She is definitely a force for innovation in this world. And today we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the emotional roller coaster of pioneering. And what does it what does it do to us as pioneers? How do we lead through all of that, the emotions of, of the fear and the anxiety um, and the deep listening into the, the crazy stuff that God is calling us to do in the world? And before I uh, allow Elaine to introduce herself, I do want to say a little bit about her background. She is the author of 11 books. And if you haven't read any of her books, I invite you to immediately after this podcast, go to Amazon and look her up. Uh, She speaks all over the world. She consults with um, judicatories, with seminaries, with um, people starting new things all over the world. Recently, um, she was the dean of Duke Divinity. And after she left Duke, she started a neighborhood seminary who that's uh, a nonprofit, and she helps to lead that seminary now. And she also, um, with the help of her husband and um, co-conspirators, has started a new ministry called Spring Forest, and it is a farm ministry. I would say a farm-to-table ministry, Elaine. And from there, take it away, Elaine. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about your journey and how you ended up Uh, Starting Neighborhood Seminary and Spring Forest. Thank you, Beth. And thanks for the privilege and joy of being on your podcast. It's it's always fun to talk to you. And I never know where the conversation is going to (laughs) go. So, yeah. So um, when I started seminary, I was in the Pentecostal church. And then I, uh, and in a Wesleyan Holiness Church, was kind of trying to find a place to be at the time. And then um, I became a United Methodist about two-thirds of the way through seminary. Once I started serving as a United Methodist pastor, I quickly realized that expectations for lay leadership development were quite different in the United Methodist Church than in the sort of evangelical and Pentecostal churches I had been in um, in my earlier years. Uh, When I was a Pentecostal, the belief was if God gives you a gift to preach, you should preach, and it doesn't have anything to do with ordination. And, you know, if you're baptized and you believe in Jesus, you can serve the sacraments. It was so so I was formed in that sort of the spirit gives the gifts without respect to age, gender, race, socioeconomic status or ordination status. And so so I come into the United Methodist Church and I realized there was a very different system going on. And uh, I loved the Wesleyan theology. I loved the story of how Methodism got started, these these radicals. It was very much like a lay monastic movement. So I began to uh, focus my work as a traditional pastor of a traditional church on leadership development for lay people and uh, organized around what the people's spiritual gifts actually were and helping the churches to reimagine themselves, how they could be in their neighborhoods and be in their world. That was really the genesis for what is now Neighborhood Seminary. 
And I, I could go into great detail about, you know, sort of step by step how we got from there to here, but that's probably too much detail for now. Um, when I was uh, started into academic ministry, I was about three years in. I, I served for two years at my alma mater in Ashland, Ohio. And then I went to Perkins School of Theology while I was there very early on as a professor of evangelism. I realized that many students coming to seminary uh, did not see themselves in traditional ministry. They were typically a bit vague about where they saw themselves going. They knew God was calling them. They had a real heart for justice. They had a heart for learning to pray deeply and practice wise discernment, but they were, they were uh, without guidance. And so they were asking me for help. Some of them said they thought they would have to leave the church to answer God's call. And that's how I got started developing experimental communities, um, both residential communities that became new monastic communities and then um, missional house churches that we called New Day. And these communities were located in different social contexts. And so it was in a sort of matrix of doing experimental communities with students and friends and getting to know uh, the lay of the land. I focused my research and writing on alternative forms and new forms of faith community that were emerging at that time. And that's kind of what got me on this trajectory. I founded Missional Wisdom Foundation with Larry Duggins and then uh, continued and it all, it all really grew a lot. And then I was ultimately recruited to go to Duke because of my uh, work on the ground with the church, the church broadly. By then I was resourcing the church around the world and my writing um, so my academic work and contributions were taken seriously, but what really captured the attention of the church was my work on the ground mm -hmm. that was informed by my academic work. So I went to Duke and um, stayed there as long as I could until God called me out. <laughs> so I, I took a retirement and uh, started Neighborhood Seminary, the pilot of it. Uh, I had designed the first template for it. And then, of course, we put a team of people together that started while I was at Duke. And then I left uh, Duke altogether in order to focus on developing neighborhood seminary. So it's a, it's a nonprofit and uh, our tagline for it is uh, we teach people to show up, pay attention, cooperate with God and release the outcome. And then they go change the world. <laughs> so that's what we, that's what we do. <clears throat> so we've been in existence now for, uh, three years. We're just starting our fourth year, and we uh, have students and participants uh, teaching and people uh, providing spiritual direction and so on, uh, really from coast to coast, from California to Maine. Uh, our programs are all online now, so that they are accessible to anyone around the world, and we're pretty excited about it. Um, so that's one, th the answer to one of your questions. Yeah. The other question you asked was about Spring Forest. And really, um, when we moved to North Carolina five years ago, we bought a rural property with the intention that we could start what is now called Spring Forest. And so uh, what we have here now is two properties. Uh, my husband and I own one of the properties and some friends own the adjacent property. There are two houses. There are three families living on site. And uh, there's another couple that live in Texas that come and go. Uh, they're here a few times a year and uh, are caring for elderly parents the rest of the year. And uh, we have a farm and our ministry is organized around the farm. So if you think about a Venn diagram uh, with the three inter 
connected circles. So one of the circles is the residential community, which we um, sort of playfully call the monastery. <laughs> a non-traditional monastery that's far, far organized around a farm. And then another circle is the church at Spring Forest, which is a new faith community uh, with our pastor, Francis Kenua, under appointment in the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. So it's a it's a non-traditional church. It's a rural, fresh expression that's organized around farming and food security issues and refugee resettlement support. So that's a circle. And then the third circle in the Venn diagram is, uh, is the farm itself. And so, and why that's a separate circle is that there's a whole community of people who consider the farm and farming together, and you know, these volunteers who come from different religions, from no religion, from anti-religion, but have a spiritual community as volunteers who really care about food security. They really care about justice for refugees, and they really care about the well-being of the earth. And so this is a place where they find community and participation. So if you look at that Venn diagram with those overlapping circles, the very center of that, that little shape, that's where our, our, our common set of spiritual practices go, our, our rule of life, which is prayer, work, table, and neighbor. That's our rule of life. So we're pretty excited. Um, our farm has really grown well in the last year. It took us a couple of years to get infrastructure in place, and we had all sorts of things to deal with. For <laughs> I can't even get into all the things we had to deal with, but um, we now have about 25 volunteers who regularly come, and uh, all of us who live on the property work together using our gifts and interest to make sure the work gets done. My area of passion is the livestock. So I take care of our sheep and goats and oversee the care of the chickens and ducks and, and all of that. Um, and so we are just starting a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Project. It starts September 7th and people can subscribe for a weekly box of vegetables, fresh organic vegetables. And uh, we, we intend and hope and pray that our CSA will become the economic engine to fund our ministry. So our goal is within the next two years for our CSA to grow to enough subscriptions that we'll have the revenue stream we need to pay for the cost of, the, of doing this ministry. This year, we donated 1,500 pounds of cabbage to area food banks. We harvested 2,500 pounds of potatoes, um, some of which will go into our CSA boxes, some to our community members and volunteers, and the rest will go to area food banks and support refugees and their resettlement. So that's a lot of stuff. I should, I should stop for a moment. Yeah, that is a lot of stuff. And for um, people listening, um, they're probably wondering, wow, <laughs> how does one go about starting a seminary, starting a farm, a pharmacy? you know, a, a worshiping community and have it be uh, uh, moving towards self-sustainability. Uh, um, how does one do that, Elaine? And how have you um, listened in for um, the spirit at work and all of that? Well, it's an old African proverb. It takes a village. Mm -hmm. uh, every one of these things takes a village of people. It takes uh, a group of people who catch the vision, are passionate about it, are willing to invest themselves and really become stakeholders. You know, they're, they invest their time, their 
uh, abilities, finances, and also we can see this uh, get off the ground and get going. In some ways, well, in many ways, I would say neighborhood seminary is the sort of, um, it's the summation of what I've been teaching for all these years mm-hmm. about equipping lay people to fully give themselves to God and fully go forward and go on this fantastic adventure outside of the church walls. Not that we hate the church or anything like that, but we don't, the, the world needs the good news. The world needs the love of God and the, the healing and liberation and the incredible uh, transformation that the gospel actually brings. And, um, and so this has been my passion to help the church get that and say yes to that. And, uh, and the church will never get that and say yes to that if it doesn't have really good theological and spiritual formation organized around these ideas and principles, which are really just basic gospel 101. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, yeah, so it takes a, a group of people and um, I, you know, at my stage of life, I'm retired now, although I still am very energetic and <laughs> work, work more than 40 hours a week, I'm sure between all the things I do. Um, I've had enough experience and formed enough relationships with people here and really around the world to have the support networks and the partners in order for these two things to have launched when they did. And, um, and so that's how you do it. You, you, you look at what's in my hand. This is what God says to Moses, right? He's like, I can't do this. It's too big. And God says, well, what's that in your hand? <laughs> so we start with what's in our hand. And then pay attention to what's coming toward us, the people, the resources, the ideas. And when the idea matches up with resources coming toward us and the the energy is right, then you go with it. And if you have an idea, but there are no resources and you can't get it off the ground, then it's not the time for it or else it's not the idea for here and now. It might be for somewhere else at another time. Mm -hmm. So it all has to do with discernment and with with staying in step with the spirit, I would say. Yeah. Yes. And you have beautifully coined this term, the contemplative stance in the world. And it, you, you shared the, the farm's tagline. Uh, um, no, it's the seminary's tagline. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, could you share a little bit, in, a little bit more in detail um, about what I would say is the way forward uh for uh, faith community formation and innovation in the 21st century. It's this particular stance. So could you dive a little deeper into that stance for us? Sure. So um, let me preface by saying practicing this stance in the world is nothing new. It's quite ancient. Mm -hmm. And uh, people have articulated it in different ways. This is my way of saying it. But uh, showing up. So in order to live in step with the spirit and, and live on this great adventure with God and have your life make a difference in the world and have your community make a difference, we have to learn how to actually be present. And for most of us, this takes a lot of inner work. Mm-hmm. It takes inner work. We have to have self-awareness. We need to, um, we need to heal from wounds that we've received, received in life, whether it's bullying or sexual abuse or whatever wounds we've received in life to attend to those and heal from them and uh, do the other sort of self-care things, what one needs to do, taking Sabbath, for example, um, 
healing from shame and I mean, all these things. So mm-hmm. showing up is not just a simple, um, I'm going to light my candle this morning and sit in this chair where I like to pray. And, and so I can show up to God, or I'm going to attend the neighborhood barbecue, even though I'm an introvert. <laughs> it's those things too. Those are some practices that can help us to show up, but we, we really have to do the inner work or we won't even show up when we show up. So it's showing up to our full humanity, to our full humanity, to our full story mm-hmm. and to the full love of God mm-hmm. that God loves and accepts us. Because as we uh, deepen in our relationship with God and our true condition of being absolutely loved by God, that becomes this, um, the fountainhead for everything. Mm-hmm. That's what frees us from defending ourselves to, you know, being defended or, or not telling ourselves the truth or, you know, what, or staying stuck in this sort of self-loathing or whatever our thing might be. This um, experience of being deeply beloved always, uh, this becomes the fountainhead for being able to show up. So once we uh, we're practicing a, a daily practice, of showing up and it, you know, and it's, it's both um, things like praying in the morning or whatever time you take to be quiet and be attentive. So regularly doing that and using whatever tools might help like journaling or a prayer bell or whatever these tools might be. So we show up and we're in the showing up, we pay attention. Uh, We're there to notice in a not judgmental way, what's going on inside ourselves and just to notice it and to, uh, to, to uh, see how God might be inviting us to do something or not do something or inviting us to a deeper level of growth or whatever God might be inviting us to. So we're showing up and we're noticing that. And we're, even as we're getting better at showing up to ourselves and God in this sort of internal way, we become better at showing up to our neighbors outwardly and to our like our, our neighbors that live with us in the same house and our neighbors that are in the same apartment building and our neighbors uh, more broadly until finally we're also showing up to our enemies. And this is the epitome of the gospel to show up to our enemies in the same posture of uh, that God loves our enemies too. And, and to show up. so we're showing up, we're noticing, we're paying attention. And as we um, experience God's invitation to say or do or be anything or anywhere, we agree. We agree. We cooperate. We're going to cooperate with God. And, and I intentionally choose this word rather than obedience or obey because that word has been so damaged and hijacked in oppressive ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word obedience really means to listen into action, but that's not what we think it means. We think it means subservience. So I say cooperate because I, I believe God doesn't coerce us into participation with God's work in the world. As we cooperate, we also release the outcome. It's, mm-hmm. We don't have to be in control of the outcome. This is both scary and awesome. <laughs> it's, it's very liberating. So this way of being in the world is about our own selves and our inner life and our own journey, but it's also increasingly how we relate to everybody and everything that we encounter along the way. And, uh, and this is what gives us the freedom, the deep freedom to just move with the spirit, uh, stay in the flow. Like we're in the river, we're flowing with the current. Yeah. And then life becomes, um, a set of looking um, <laughs> and discovering the miracle of every moment. Yes, absolutely. Uh, every day is an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in the midst of this contemplative uh, stance in the world, um, in the showing up and paying attention, 
there is this, there's a, there's a magnitude of feeling oh, yes. uh, that we show up to, um, the, the pain and the suffering, the fear, the anxiety, and um, how that gets maybe even more intense when we listen in for the way God is inviting us to cooperate with, with the spirit of the unfolding. Mm -hmm. Um, So would you like to walk in there a little bit and tell us how you've used that sense of, you call it fragility and Mm -hmm. unfinished business to be maybe the instigator, motivator, holy agitation of that new thing? Yeah. It's a paradox. Um, Nobody wants to feel fragile. (laughs) Nobody wants to feel that way. And we don't like the feeling that our ministry is fragile, that this thing we're doing is may not last. It may not be sustainable. That's the buzzword. You know, is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. And actually none of us knows if anything is sustainable. And actually at the end of the day, nothing is sustainable, but faith, hope, and love <laughs> the scripture teaches. So, uh, but in our search for, for comfort and control for certitude, we want to only get behind things that we are, you know, we think there's a guarantee it's going to be sustainable. So I think one of the first things that we have to encounter as we're pioneering new things is the, is this the fallacy of sustainability. The fallacy is none of us really knows. And at the end of the day, nothing is sustainable, but faith, hope, and love. So everything is changing as St. Teresa of Avila said, Uh, everything passes, uh, uh, but, but God is with us. So what I find when starting something new, and I've started many new things over the years, <laughs> uh, I always feel a real excitement. I'm, I'm more comfortable than most people are uh, dwelling in a space of change. I'm more comfortable with that for various reasons. So I'll get started with the new thing with my buddies, whatever the new thing is. Here we are at Spring Forest. We've got our friends coming from Kansas who are originally from Kenya. We're going to do this new thing at this farm. And we get started with the farm uh, right away after we purchase the farm or right, right on the cusp of purchasing the farm. Uh, I, I learned that I'm stepping down from my dean's job. So my income's going to change. And, and then shortly after that, I realized God's calling me to leave academia, traditional academia, which means my income will really change. <laughs> and yet we've got this farm that we've made uh, plans to, to start. And so we had to show up. Oops. Hold on. Sorry about that. Problem. Yeah, we we made we made plans, and so we so we had to do this contemplative stance. We had to say, okay, did God call us to buy that farm? It did God call Francis to come and be the pastor of the new church start and to live in community with us with this rule of life? Did these things happen? So yes, yes, they happened. Yes, they happened. Here are all the different things that are in alignment. Okay. It doesn't look like we'll be financially sustainable over the long haul, given our economic changes. Should we still buy the farm? Well, God already opened up the path for these first pieces of this dream to become real. We first had the inkling of this dream almost 20 years ago, and a promise was given to us in prayer that this would happen someday in the future at a really great place. It looks like the Spirit's saying, yes, go for it. (laughs) And so uh, fear tells us not to do it because mm-hmm. we can't determine for sure if we'll be sustainable financially. We can't determine for sure if these things we're dreaming are going to work out and be successful. And yet 
they have this sense of calling and leading that's been there for a long time. And this much of the way has opened up. So we decided we're going to cooperate with God and we're going to release the outcome of sustainability. If it lasts for two years and then dies, at least it'll be an awesome two years. (laughs) If it lasts for 10 years and then dies, it will have been an awesome 10 years. (laughs) And so we decided to go for it. We get started. They come, we have all this infrastructure work that we have to do, all this hard work. And while we're doing all the hard work, it's like taking agriculture classes and all these things, because my husband and I were not farmers before. Francis is an experienced farmer, but there are all these detail things. And that's when, for me, the way I'm wired, I start to say to myself, this feels very fragile. Uh, mm-hmm. What if we break a rule with the county? What if, you know, so, sort of what ifs? And it all feels so fragile. There's so many things that have to come into alignment and it's this feeling of being fragile. And then that taps into old shame that goes back from trauma from growing up in a violent home and experiencing violence as a young adult, the kind of violence that leaves you with deep, toxic shame. I've worked really hard to heal from that shame, (laughs) but that old shame voice just pops right up in those moments of feeling fragile and says, you're going to fail. This is a stupid idea. Why did you think you could do this? Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And so then in that moment where I'm facing that old voice again, this voice that's accusing, that's shaming, that's judging, which of course, you know, in Revelation, it says uh, Satan is the accuser of God's children. (laughs) So it's quite (laughs) interesting. The accuser stands before God day and night, accusing, accusing. Uh, Then in that moment, I have a choice. I can say, uh, I'm going to lean into being God's beloved. God's going to take care of this. And my job is not to control the outcome, is to show up every day and do what I can do today and to trust God with the outcome. And so then I I have a choice to do that or to not do that. If I don't do it, God doesn't abandon me. (laughs) God is so kind, kind like God is with uh, Gideon, who's terrified and filled with trauma in his context. And God just keeps working, you know, until we kind of turn the corner. So if we don't get it right, God's, God doesn't give up on us. Um, God's so patient and creative and playful um, and really gets it about our weaknesses and limitations. But then when I do get it right, and I said, well, let's go for it. We've got enough indicators here and I'm going to release the outcome. Then what I find internally is more freedom, more freedom for the next time. And over the years, I can see a significant growth in freedom that comes specifically because of fragility, this feeling of, I don't know, this might not work. What are they going to think? Will will they pull the plug? You know, (laughs) what's going to happen here? I've written books about this. Now I'm going to fail miserably and nobody will want to hear me talk again. And then, you know, sort of like your identity is kind of, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's that's how it works. So what I'm hearing from you is that... uh... The more you step out and trust in letting go of the outcome, it's like um, there's this resilience that's kind of the, the net and, and the resilience net continues to um, to grow uh, so it can handle more and handle, yes. more, handle more so that the next time that those uh, that fragility shows up and that shame shows up. There's this sense of, oh, I remember, I, I know this journey. Mm-hmm. And the last time uh, when I let go, there was, I, I felt this sense of resilience, this, this net that caught, that caught this, um, this, this grace that appeared. And um, maybe I can trust that again. 
Yes. Yes, that's exactly what happens. A great example of this just happened last year. So at the end of 2019, you know, we'd had the farm for one year and Francis and his family had come and had been with us for six months. And because of some government policies under the former administration, (laughs) the United States, um, it threw a monkey wrench into our plan for economic sustainability through the farm and through the things that we were doing. It just threw a monkey wrench in. And we realized that we couldn't afford to keep paying for the farm because of all of these changes, my, my income change and then these government policies. And so we realized we were going to have to pivot. We were going to have to sell the farm side of the property and just try to use the front part of our property for a very small scale of the same thing we wanted to do. So we all talked to the bishop and all the people we had to talk to to sort of recalibrate what our new faith community was going to do in mission. They got behind it. They were, they were gracious. And we put the farm on the market in January of 2020, 10 minutes before COVID broke out. <laughs> so right when we put it on the market, I went out to California to teach and the Academy for Spiritual Formation in Oakland, California. And um, so I go out there to teach all week long on the spiritual practice of uh, discernment for leadership. So it was a week on discernment and sort of, and I got towards the end of the week and all week long, I'd been giving talks and I, I usually use slides with images from what I'm actually doing or where I am to, to sort of illustrate or use as symbols for what I'm talking about. So I, I told the story of spring forest, which, you know, by then it was a year old or something. It was pretty new and we were having to pivot. And I, the point I wanted to make was, as you show up and pay attention and cooperate with God, sometimes God leads you to do a thing and then you have to pivot midstream, either because God has something important that you need to do that God couldn't reveal to you at first or it would have freaked you out or something, or human interference with what God wants to do, <laughs> which happens all the time, which is, it's great that God's so creative and can work through and around our interferences, you know. So I talked about our need to pivot and that we were in the process of discerning what this pivot was going to look like. And I ended the class by saying, but don't worry, God will make a way. We just have to stay in this river of God's movement. And God ha- God's like water flowing downhill, goes around obstacles, you know, wears them down, whatever, you know. So I finished um, that class and a woman in the class came to me and she said, the Holy Spirit's been talking to me all week. And my husband and I are supposed to buy your farm. Oh my so gosh. You, you could keep doing what you've been doing. And uh, we'll, I, I'm sure of it. And we, we have the resources to do this. We live in Texas. We were missionaries in Ghana for 11 years as engineers. And now, you know, caring for elderly parents. But what you're doing is the sort of thing we longed to do in our retirement. So we'll just buy the farm. And uh, you can keep on doing what you're doing. We'll lease it back to you uh, for very little money. And we'll come and participate several times a year as we're able. And then down the road, when the time comes, we'll relocate and be on site and, and be part of your community. And I was just agog, <laughs> just agog. And so they did it. They did it. They bought the farm. And by the time I got home from that trip, COVID, there were lockdowns happening. They bought the farm sight unseen. And they lease it back to our church for $50 a month so we could not only continue, but expand our ministry. And they bought it just in the nick of time when my income was dropping. (laughs) So, wow. So now you have actually more income because you don't have this big uh, debt that you're servicing. 
Right. We don't have the debt now. And so we're able to, we're able to stay here and be at peace and can afford to live here. And, um, and now we have the CSA, which is the economic engine that's getting ready to start. Uh, and it, so it's working out better than before we realized we had to pivot. So, uh, yeah. So, so now as I look at other challenges that, that are on the horizon, I go right back to that. I think, you know, God led us all the way and that happened. So I'm just going to trust God for the CSA to work out for the, and if it doesn't work out, something else will come up that does work out because it seems pretty obvious to me that we're supposed to be doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. That is beautiful. Elaine, um, what kind of words of wisdom do you have for people uh, that uh, are feeling the call? to starting new things, to pioneering a new way of showing up in faithful community um, as they are trying to discern, okay, uh, do I, do I walk the path with the institutional church? Um, How do I navigate that? What, what wisdom do you have for them? The first thing is that the institutional church is in deep crisis. It's imploding in many ways for a whole range of reasons. And this creates such anxiety in the institutional church systems that it's very difficult for leaders within, you know, sort of leaders that are in the middle of all that to be able to do the creative thinking. And there's just so much going on. So I find it very helpful for people who are called to innovate to, if they can at all, find their own source of funding, start small and lean. I mean, keep it lean anyway. That makes good Mm -hmm. sense. It's good stewardship. Look at what's in your hand. Again, going back to Moses, what do you already have? Who are the people that you already know? What are the resources already at your disposal? Everything from your own garage to the people around the corner to people that don't really go to church, but they really love and trust you. You know, What do you have and how could you get started the first small step? And is there a way you can fund this yourself? Now, for people who are already pastors in churches, and this is all they've done for a living, it gets pretty tough if you're 55 years old. And you've never worked for a paid job other than be a pastor. Yeah. It's hard to imagine and implement changing your vocation so that you earn a living doing something else, especially if you've got kids in college or, you know, stuff like that. But I've had several former students who did this very thing. They um, went through seminary. They started in pastoral ministry, realized that God was calling them to innovate and then retooled. A couple of them retooled to become therapists. It didn't take forever. And that gave them the space. One of them is an art teacher now. Now they can they can innovate. They've created faith communities that are, they're not paid to be the pastor, but they are the team leader and they earn their income and get their health insurance and benefits from a different job, which by the way, usually the pay is better at a different job anyway. <laughs> and the health benefits, just the way things are. Mm-hmm. So if it's possible to do all those things and that you, you want to give yourself maximum elbow room to innovate and to fail forward, mm-hmm. the more strings that attach you to institutional coffers, the harder it is to fail forward because of the anxiety in the system, the limited resources and uh, the uh, short the short time frame that the system can give you to get this thing up and running and working. You need more time typically than what you get from uh, institutional systems for starting something new. So uh, those are some things I'm thinking about. Thank you, Elaine. Um, 
I think that that we've gotten a full kind of picture today and enough for people to chew on. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom and your story about um, the next new things that, that God is calling you to and how you practice so beautifully that contemplative stance in the world. Thank you, Beth. It's been a joy to be with you. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.